You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. I don't know sometimes how um, things that we do here translate to you there sitting in your home. Um, but if that song didn't uh, get your attention and, uh, and just bless your heart, I, I would imagine there must be something going on with your internet connection because it was phenomenal. I just appreciate our worship team and uh, all the adjustments they've had to make uh, over the last several weeks and the way we've been doing things here. And we just uh, are grateful for them, for the talents and spiritual gifts that they utilize in bringing glory and honor to God. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, we're going to take a look at one of the one of the greatest moments in the book of Acts. We've seen several already. Uh, Pentecost, um, we've seen uh, the man at the gate called Beautiful. Uh, we've seen Peter and John continue to grow in faith, grow in preaching. Uh, we've seen the gospel go forth through the city of Jerusalem. We have uh, witnessed Stephen's martyrdom. Uh, we have seen how that has caused the church to scatter beyond the walls of Jerusalem, just as Jesus said that it would, that they would be witnesses uh, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost. We've seen Philip go not only to Samaria, uh, but we've also seen him go down to the road that leads to Gaza, and there he meets a man who who needed to hear about Jesus, needed needed those final pieces of the puzzle to kind of fit together to understand who Jesus is and, and what he accomplished through the prophet Isaiah. But what we have before us today in, in Acts 9 is, is one of the greatest moments in the entire book because it's from this point on. Now, I want you to understand that from chapters 8 to chapters 12, which we're kind of walking through now, where then we're going to take a break again in a few weeks, and we're actually going to go look at a minor prophet, Hosea, and then we'll come back to the book of Acts. But what we're looking at now is, is basically a transition period in the book of Acts. We're, we're transitioning from a ministry that's focused predominantly on uh, Jerusalem to now it's spreading to the Gentiles. And, and in these, these moments in between, there's going to be a tension in the church, in this New Testament church. The tension is going to be, is, is Christianity some kind of offshoot of Judaism, meaning that that with the Christians who are coming to faith and putting their faith in Jesus and becoming disciples, should they adhere to the law, or is this something new that God is doing? Uh, and this is very much a transition stage. Paul is going to be central to not only what happens in these chapters, but what's going to happen beyond that, because we also begin to turn our focus away from, from Peter. Uh, not yet. We've we got a few more things we've got to deal with with Peter in the coming weeks, but Eventually, Peter's going to kind of fade into the background, and our focus is going to be on Paul and his traveling uh, companions as he plants churches all over Asia Minor, all the way into Macedonia, and all the way to Rome. When I was growing up, the church that I attended, ever so often, um, there would be something unique would happen in, in our worship services. And it would often start out kind of, um, I don't know, simply, uh, maybe the pastor would ask for a testimony. Uh, maybe it would be during the uh, songs or maybe during the sermon. He, he, would just, he would just ask for someone from the floor to share a testimony. Sometimes it would, it would start out almost immediately in the service. And what would happen is, is one person would share a testimony, then another person would share a testimony, then another person would share a testimony. Next thing you know, over half the service or the entire service, I can remember entire services completely given to people standing and sharing their testimony. And I can remember after I came to faith in Christ at age 16, uh, the first service where we, we needed to share uh, or we had an opportunity to share a testimony, I'd never done that before, but I could feel the Holy Spirit leading me to do that, and I was scared to death. But, but here's one of the tensions that I felt during that, that testimony time. And for those of you who kind of grew up in that kind of church, you'll understand this, and and maybe for those who didn't grow up in church, this is going to sound maybe a little odd to you, but just, just stick with me for a moment. Uh, in, during those testimony services, uh, it, it would seem as though 
And I know this, I'm not judging the hearts of the people and what they were thinking or what they were doing, but from, from a 16, 17 year old who had just given his heart and life to Christ, it, it seemed as though my testimony was not all that great compared to everyone else's. Now, let me explain. We would have people stand up in the service and they would share about how they were addicted to alcohol for many, many, many years and, and how that people had prayed for them and how people had, had come and visited with them and shared the gospel. They kept rejecting and rejecting. And finally, one day, Jesus broke their heart and they put their faith in Jesus. And, and on that very day, they walked away from all of their addiction to alcohol. It was gone in a matter of moments. I'm talking about an incredible testimony Then someone else would stand up. And it would be another testimony of God's incredible intervention. Maybe it was through some kind of miracle, maybe some kind of saving their, their marriage or saving their life through maybe a drunk driving uh, accident or something. And it, and it seemed like with every testimony, it seemed like the testimony that came next was, was stronger or more powerful than the testimony preceding it. Now, I'm not saying that people are trying to outdo one another, not at all, but from a 16-year-old who who basically ran from Christ for about three years. I wasn't an alcoholic. I, I wasn't a really bad kid, although I was significantly rebellious, uh, arrogant, prideful, all the stuff that most 14, 15, 16-year-olds go through. I was all of that and more. But as far as going out and getting in trouble, not a lot. So when I would hear all these testimonies, I would think, Wow, my, my testimony is nothing like theirs. And, and I would be a little bit resistant in, in, in saying anything. And I can remember I probably went through two or three services before I finally shared my faith and shared what God had done in my life. But I'll tell you what was integral to that. I'll tell you what changed my perspective on that. There was a, a gentleman, an older gentleman, and my mom and dad would pick him and his wife up as we could go to church because they didn't like to drive, especially at night. So during the nighttime services, my, my parents would pick this couple up on our way to church. Just sweet, humble people. I'm just awesome people. And during these testimony services, um, Mr. Hallbrook would usually be the last one to stand up and share his testimony. And he, he came to faith in Christ when he was a young man. And I'll never forget what he said. And he, most of the time he couldn't get through his testimony because the tears would just be flowing out of his out of his eyes. He just, he could not get through. And all he would be able to do is, is just hold his hand up and give praise to God. But what he would say is he would say, I wasn't an alcoholic. I wasn't a drunk. I was a good husband. I was a hardworking man. And he would say this, he said, but I was lost and I needed Jesus. And it was when I heard his testimony, I realized that yes, the contrast between who you were and who you are now in Christ that, that, is, that is something that all of us as Christ followers, we have that testimony. It doesn't matter if you came to faith in Christ when you were eight years old or 80 years old. That, that there is a difference between who we are now and who we once were. And Christ is that pivotal moment in our life that changed everything. The whole, the whole idea of a new birth, the whole idea of coming from darkness into light, all of that, every one of us who are disciples of Christ should have that testimony. We were once this, this is the kind of person we once were. We met Jesus and now I'm this, that contrast. And I, I realized that yes, God has done miraculous things in your lives. And many of you have incredibly powerful testimonies, but, but even if, even if you weren't all that bad, trust me when I tell you, the Bible's very clear. We were all sinners all bound for hell, all bound for the wrath of God. And if God had not intervened, if God had not pursued us, if God had not come looking for us, we weren't looking for him. He came looking and pursuing and drawing us by the Holy Spirit to the cross. If it had not been for that, then we would all be lost and dying in our sins and even separated from him forever. So the fact is, it's that contrast, that difference that Christ makes in your life. Talk about the difference that Christ made and a man named Saul's life. I mean, if you, if you want to talk about the epitome of, of contrast between who a man once was and who we find this man to be as we go through the book of Acts, it could not be more of a contrast. Did you know the Bible has no concept of a person placing their faith in Jesus yet having no life change? Did you know that the New Testament has no concept 
of an idea of where a person surrenders their life to Christ, yet there is no life change that accompanies that. There, there is nothing in the New Testament that shares or, or gives us support for the idea that we can both be a Jesus follower and be just like the world. There is no concept of that. Everything that the Bible teaches us about faith in Christ is life change, contrast, who we once were and who we are now. Think about the comparisons that the New Testament makes. I'll give you a few of them. Light versus darkness. Death versus life. Spiritual death versus spiritual life. Alien sonship. I'm not talking about alien from another planet. I'm talking about alienated, separated from God. Alienated from God, separated from God on the outside looking in versus sonship, daughters and sons of God. We have this idea of orphans versus adoption. That we were once orphans. We were once basically left alone to ourselves in the kingdom of darkness with no father, spiritually speaking, whatsoever, and we were left to ourselves, and then God adopted us as sons and daughters. Wrath versus justification, that I was under the wrath of God because I put my faith in Jesus who took my wrath upon himself. The Bible says that, that I've been justified. In other words, I've been declared righteous. That the Bible declares me as a saint. Now, that doesn't mean that I live every day in sainthood by no means. But what it does mean is that my position has changed. I've come out of wrath and I'm now a son. I'm now justified, declared holy. He, the Bible also talks about sinner versus saint. The contrast is clear and you can find it over and over, especially in Paul's writings. This contrast between what once was, but what now is reality. Does this describe your life as a disciple? Does it describe your life in that there is such a contrast between who you are or who you are now, post-salvation, new birth, versus who you once were? Can you look back in your life as a disciple and see the difference that Christ has made in your life? Can you see the changes that he's made in your life that, that quite frankly, you couldn't have changed on your own? Do you, do you see that? There's probably no greater example in the New Testament, especially, of the power of the cross in a person's life. Paul is that guy who has such a contrast to who he was, to who he's going to become, that, that you can't help but realize that, that the power of the cross in his life is what made the difference. And it's the same for you and I. The, the power of the cross, the power of Christ, the power of Holy Spirit in us, that change that has been made from death and the life, you cannot deny that that power is beyond the power that you hold yourself. The power of a changed life is, is far greater than the empty rituals of a spiritually dead convert. Now, let me explain that. What we're going to see in Paul's life is that Paul had all the religion a man could possibly need, but he was spiritually dead. Now, he was converted to Judaism. We're going to look at his resume. He was converted to Judaism. He'd been raised, steeped in Judaism, but he was spiritually dead. And all the religious rituals that he could participate in and, and, and give his life to made no change whatsoever in him. But the power of the cross can. It, it can change your life. And no amount of empty rituals will ever change you. No amount of, of doing, trying to do the good things that you think are going to be the difference changer for you, that's going to make you right with God, no matter how much you do in your strength, you're still spiritually dead. But if a person's been changed by the power of the cross, listen, there is no greater testimony to this community than a person who once was this and is now this. No greater testimony. Let's take a look at Paul's background here. Let's look at chapter 9, verse 1. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now that, 
That insight that Luke gives us in, in the book of Acts should prompt us to want to know more about this man, Saul, that we know, Paul. So I want you to turn over to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Now, Paul, throughout the rest of his life, after he comes to faith in Christ and, and he begins to be that, that um, author of, of two-thirds of the New Testament through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's going to write multiple times about his experience on the road to Damascus that we're going to look at today. It was such a life-altering event for him that he couldn't help but bring it up over and over and over again. In the book of Acts, he'll share his testimony about what happens on the Damascus Road in chapter 9 two more times. But throughout his letters to the individual churches, he'll reference it multiple times. It may be just a single few verses where when you realize when he's talking about this single verse, he's actually referring back to that moment on the Damascus Road. It, it changed everything for him. But I want you to look at Philippians 3 because I want you to hear from Paul's lips himself his own resume, his resume of works and his resume of religiosity. I want you to hear it from him. He says in chapter 3, let's start at verse 1. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. There's no trouble to me and is safe for you. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, Paul in this letter to the church at Philippi, he's warning them about false teachers who creep into the church and begins to add the law, works of the law, circumcision, doing these things that, that they were doing as Jewish people before they came to faith in Christ, trying to add that into the gospel and saying that, that if you're going to be a Christ follower, then great, then you must do this and this and this and this in addition to putting your faith in Jesus. And Paul says, now, I'm going to warn you, church at Philippi, to watch out for these people. And he says, what these people are doing, by doing these works of the flesh or doing works of the law or trying to do good works to, to be right with God and add that to the gospel, he says what they're able to do then is they're able to brag about how great they are. In other words, they're able to put confidence in themselves, confidence in their works. And he says, that's exactly what they're doing. But in verse 4, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Paul says, look, if anybody has confidence in the flesh, it was certainly me. Now, what is Paul saying? Paul's saying that there was a time in his life where his life was completely consumed with keeping the law and doing what he defined as good works. And he says, by doing those things, I had a, I had a platform by which I could boast. I could, I could measure myself against someone else. I could say that I'm keeping the law better than you are because it's tangible. You can see it right there, right? I'm, I'm keeping more of the law than you are. I'm a better God follower than you are, and I can weigh this out. And so, therefore, I had a lot of opportunity to boast in my flesh. He says, though I myself have reason or confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else th thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul says, listen, you think you've got a place to brag about how all the good works you did before you met Christ and how you were trying to do good things to be right with God? I have a lot more. Let me tell you about it. He says, he says right here in verse five, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Does that mean that Paul viewed himself as perfection? Not necessarily. But what it meant was day in and day out, as Paul lived his life in Judaism, he strove every day with every cell of his being to keep the law, to keep the law. And in his mind, that bridged the gap between God and man, that, that bridge or that gap between God and man that, that sin had caused that goes all the way back to the fall, that gap between God and man could be bridged by doing good works and keeping the law and doing everything that, Mo that Moses said to do. And those 600 plus laws that, that Paul every day was consumed with doing those good works. Every day. Go back to Acts 9. So in Paul's mind, before he came to faith in Christ, he was doing the work of God in the world, that he was lined up with, with God's mission for his life and that, that God's mission for his life 
was to be zealous for Judaism. Well, how did that zeal play itself out? Well, Luke tells us in Acts 9, it says he was breathing threats and murder. Now, get this. This is, this is incredible. That a man who was consumed with keeping the law would have certainly known that accusing someone of something they didn't do and, and, and advocating for the taking of someone else's life simply because there's a disagreement in theology, certainly Paul would have known that, that those things were, were wrong, right? But Paul believes that his mission in life is to destroy the Christian movement, even so much as arresting people, falsely accusing them, dragging them back to Jerusalem for a trial, and even advocating for their death. He was standing by the side of the pit that Stephen was lying in when they were throwing rocks to take his life. Paul was standing right there holding their coats so they could get a better stroke on the rock. They could get a better aim of throwing rocks at this man lying in a pit. And all that he had done was preach the name of Jesus Christ. Now, how is it that a man who is so consumed with keeping the law and so quickly, so quickly uh, turn his back on what he knows to be right and wrong? Well, that's what religious rituals will get you. Religious ritual without heart change turns into this kind of stuff where you can, you can judge other people that disagree with you with a heart that is filled with hatred and callousness and even advocate for murder. Empty rituals, empty religion without a new heart leads to exactly where Saul is. Legalism works of the flesh, boasting in those works, which by the way, boasting in pride and arrogance, that's also breaking the law. But Paul has this amazing ability to look right past any of that and justify his actions because he's not got a new heart because he is spiritually dead. Doing works for a good resume. I had a, I had a good friend that I worked with when I first came out of community college and got my first real job in a factory. There was there was this guy that I worked with, and he was always concerned about building his resume up, right? He was, always, he was always looking for that next career step. So he would go to these trainings, these schools, these different things. He would even, he would even volunteer uh, in a soup kitchen or something so he could put that on his resume so that he could be the candidate for where the next position is. So he was always working hard and, and building his resume and looking good so that he could climb some ladder that he felt like he needed to climb. Paul told the Philippian church that he had reason to be confident. He had a reason to know and be confident that, that he was right with God, that the bridge between God and man had been built by him, and he had every reason to boast that every plank of that bridge between him and God has been laid in place, and that the works of the law that he's been keeping, that him and God are just like that. They're tight. Paul, Paul believes that his good works is all that is needed. Yet he's got a heart that is cold and indifferent. That is exactly where many of you are this morning. How do I know that? Well, because I've met many people down through the years who think that church attendance is all that is really needed. The surrendering to Christ is not necessary that as long as I go to church and as long as I do these things, or as long as, long as I be good to my neighbor, as long as, I, as long as I do the right things and I have the right motivation and I, and I do those things with the right heart, then, then everything's going to be okay. Well, the fact is, is you don't have a right heart. You have a broken, sin-cursed heart. You were born with that. And the only way... The only way to be right with God is, is to have a do-over, to have a start-over, to have a, a brand new life, to have a, a slate wiped clean, forgiven of what you've done already, and then give a new life. And that doesn't happen through your good works. Notice what happens to Paul. So Paul is now on his way to Damascus. This is a 150-mile journey. It would have taken him two weeks to make this journey. This is how zealous he is. He's willing to travel 150 miles one direction to arrest people. Now, these are probably people who were Jewish, who've put their faith in Jesus, and they have scattered because of the persecution that has increased in Jerusalem. This could have been some of the leaders within, within Judaism. And, and Paul says, I'm going to go bring them. I'm going to arrest them, and I'm going to bring them back, bound in chains, so they face trial. And 
Luke says that he's breathing threats and murder. In other words, in his mind and in his heart, he's thinking what these people really deserve is exactly what Stephen got. He's on this road to Damascus. He's making this journey. He's, he's almost to Damascus. Maybe it may be that the Damascus is in view. The city is in view. The, the town, maybe you can see the smoke rising. So most of the journey has been complete. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul replied, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. They, hearing the voice, but seeing no one, but Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So here, here it is. Saul, we know to be Paul, is doing what he thinks he ought to be doing. He thinks that by going to Damascus, he's laying some more planks in that bridge between him and God. And he's doing what he thinks is the right thing and what is pleasing unto God. And in a single moment, he's walking along. And there's a, this is right in the middle of noonday. If you go and look at Paul's descriptions in his testimonies about this day, it was at noonday. And there is a light that appears that is so bright that it is brighter than the noonday sun. And it's so bright that Paul falls to the ground. I don't know that this is necessarily out of reverence or if it's out of the sheer fact that the light is so bright that he can't stand it or the fact that, that Paul is a, is a Jewish man who's learned all about the Old Testament. And what has he learned out of the Old Testament? That when a light like this shows up, more than likely, you've got an appointment with God. You see, at this moment, Paul's on the ground. And he's trying to cover his face because the light is so bright. And then a voice comes forth out of the light. Now, his traveling companions, companions they, they, they see what's going on. They, they hear the voice, but they don't see anyone. So they're, they're not hearing all this conversation between Saul and Jesus. But it is none other than the resurrected Jesus. It is none other than Jesus resurrected in all of his power, in all of his glory, and he's got an appointment with Paul, and he says to Paul, who is Saul, he says something very interesting. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then, and then Saul replies, who are you, Lord? Now, that word Lord, it can mean a lot of things, and as far as in the Greek language, it can mean simply sir, or it can mean Lord, king, master. And I believe at this moment that's what Paul is using it as. I think he realizes the brevity of the moment. I think he realizes that this is a God moment for him. Having known all that he's seen in the Old Testament, now has come his moment. And he finds out something very interesting. He finds out that Saul, in his pursuit of the church and disciples of Jesus, has actually been persecuting the resurrected Lord. And, and, and Jesus clarifies this even more. He says, and he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. The, uh, some of your translation says you're kicking against the goads and the goads are these sharp sticks that they would use to, to kind of gather sheep together, get animals to move where they wanted to go. It's kind of like, a, kind of like the little uh, shocker sticks that you see today. It was a, a sharp stick that they would use to get the animals to go. And he, he says to Saul, Saul, you are kicking against these sharp sticks. Now, what's interesting about that statement? Well, Jesus has resurrected and he's ascended. So, so Jesus has not been with Paul or around Saul in all of these persecutions. Who has Saul been persecuting? He's been persecuting the church. But notice how Jesus sees that and how Jesus interprets that. Jesus says to Paul, Paul, every time you have attacked one of my disciples, every time you have charged one of my disciples, every time you have pursued my disciples, every time you have persecuted one of my disciples, you have persecuted me. That is a beautiful, beautiful thought, is it not? that there is such a cohesion, a, a union between Jesus and his people that when one single disciple is persecuted, Jesus feels the pain of that. I wonder if 
later on when Paul begins to talk about the church in his letters that he often refers to the church in 1 Corinthians. He refers to the church as the body, the body of Christ. I wonder, I, I don't know, because Paul doesn't say for sure, but I wonder if when Paul uses that analogy that the body of Christ is the church, I'm wondering if he's thinking about this very day where Jesus says to Paul on the road to Damascus, Paul, when you persecute my church, you're persecuting me. We're one and the same. Paul would even say that Christ is in us and we are in him, seated in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1. It's an incredible thought. But what's more staggering in this moment is that for the first time in Paul's life, he realizes that he's wrong. He realizes that he is wrong. This Jesus that he had heard about, that he hated, and all the ones who followed Jesus that he hates, that he saw Jesus as a perversion of Judaism, that, that Jesus was a false Messiah who was spewing lies, even empowered by demons. Remember, the Pharisees accused Jesus several times of the miracles that he was doing being empowered by Satan himself, and no doubt Paul believed that. So, so his hatred for the church is also the same hatred that he had for this false Messiah, Jesus, that, that, he, that Paul believes without a shadow of doubt that the body had been stolen somewhere that the body had been hidden somewhere. Paul believed all of this, and in a single moment in time, in just a few words, with a bright light on the road to Damascus, his whole world crumbles at his feet. All the presuppositions, all, all of his motivation, all of his ideas about this bridge building to God that he's been doing in his own flesh, it all blows up in just a single moment in time. And not only that, he's blind. He can't see a thing. Talk about humility. Talk about in a single moment, Paul and all of his pride and arrogance, which he talks about there in that letter to the church at Philippi, he says, if anybody had a reason to boast, it was me. He's walking that road to Damascus with arrogance and pride oozing out of every pore of his body because he's such a good Jewish man that he's following all the tenets of the law. And then in one bright light, in one single moment, and, and really in what's happening here, it could have taken just a minute or two. In a minute or two, he's faced with the reality that not only is Jesus Christ alive and well, but he's glorified. That, that the same things that happened in the Old Testament with Moses has now happened to Paul, and Paul now has a serious problem. And that problem is... Is he going to continue to adhere to his old life? But now confronted with the reality of Jesus standing right in front of him, that Jesus is here. Everything I've ever known and everything I've ever learned is absolutely, positively incorrect. Which direction is Saul going to go? He's going to eventually make his way onto Damascus. He's going to have to be led there. He, he can't do it on his own. Humility is always part of that moment with Christ, right? Because when we come to Christ, when we, we finally get to that point where we, we hear the gospel, we understand the gospel, the Holy Spirit's drawing us to the cross, there, there is no place in that exchange for pride and arrogance. As a matter of fact, Humility is what I'm looking for in the person that God is dealing with and drawing to Christ. Because you realize, you realize that, that in that moment, you have it wrong. You've had it wrong your whole life. It doesn't matter if you're 10 years old or, or 20 or 40 or 30 or 80. It doesn't matter. You realize that in that moment, all that you thought to be true is not true and that this is truth. And in that moment, there is humility that floods your soul. And without that humility, without that humility, of surrender that, that is manifested in, in, in walking away from your old life and letting go of all the presupposition and ideas that you think you have and that you think you know, that in that moment of light penetrating our hearts and seeing Jesus for all that he is, in that moment, humility is the right response. In that moment, no person has any problem admitting that they're a sinner. 
All that has gone away. In that moment, a person has no problem admitting that they have it wrong, that they were thinking wrong, that they, they didn't understand, they didn't get it all. They have no problem letting all of that go. If any of that is still there, if any of that pride of self-sufficiency is still there, there's still work to be done because they're not ready to surrender. And if you're not ready to surrender, then you've not been born again. It's that complete abandonment all of your works and all of your ideas and that bridge building that you've been trying to do to bridge that gap between you and your creator, you abandon it all because you realize how futile it really is. Jesus' unique connection to the church. When the church hurts, Jesus hurts. That's incredible. When his followers are hated, they're hating Jesus. When, when his followers are persecuted, Jesus feels that he's with you. Remember what Jesus said? He said in the Great Commission, he said, Lo, I will be with you always. Go make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he says, and when you're going to face some troubles, he told his disciples, you guys are going to face some difficulty, but I'm going to be with you. That's never more evident than in this encounter on the Damascus Road. When did Paul put his faith in Jesus? When did, when, did Paul, when did Paul finally give it up? I don't know. I just know that he did. What Was it in the moment of the light? Was it in the moment where Jesus says what he needs to say to Paul in that moment, or, or did it come later? I don't know. But I can't imagine what those days were like afterwards. Man's blind, been taken to Judas's house, not Judas the disciple, another Judas who lives in Damascus. Look what happens in verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. I'd love to have a record of what Paul was praying. I, I don't know what it was. But can you imagine what he's praying to God? Can you imagine how different his prayer is now? If, if, this is, if he's put his faith in Jesus or he's in that process of, of letting go of his old life and realizing that Jesus is, in fact, Messiah, can you imagine the prayers he's saying in humility now? As a matter of fact, in all the prayers that he's ever prayed as a Jew, none have been more humble than the one he's praying right now. You know why? Because of that encounter on the Damascus Road. When everything was laid bare, Jesus goes to Ananias and he says, look, I've got a guy over here. His name's Paul or Saul from, from Tarsus. And he's at the home of Judas's house and he's there and he's praying. And, and, and I, I, have inf I have confronted him. It's amazing here that we have a vision inside of a vision. We have Jesus in, going to Ananias in a vision, telling Ananias about another vision that Paul got on the road to Damascus. And he says, I need you to go over there and I need you to lay hands on this guy so that he might receive his sight. Verse 13, Ananias said, uh, wait a minute, Lord. <laughs> I've heard many things about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. It's interesting to me that Ananias, who is a Christ follower, knew that Saul was on his way to Damascus to arrest possibly him and others. It could have been that Ananias is the one on the hit list. It could have been that Ananias is the one that Saul is coming for. How they knew, I don't know. But somehow the word got to them that this man Saul, who already had a testimony of breathing threats and murders and arrests, of course Ananias is a little bit apprehensive. I would have been too. Is this guy trying to infiltrate the church so he can uncover who the disciples of the way are? But wait a minute, Jesus is speaking to me. He's giving me a vision. Jesus is, is honest and there's no way he's lying to me. There's no way he's going to mislead me. So Ananias does exactly what I would have done. He's going to go with a little bit of anxiety about this. So he goes and he finds Paul. But before he does, look at verse 15. I want you to see. I want you to see what the Lord says about Paul or Saul. I keep going back and forth on those. I hope you're following. Saul is Paul, vice versa. It says here, he says to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, verse 15, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for me. Even as Paul 
has been breathing threats against Christ's people. Even as he's been boasting in his own arrogance and pride, even as Paul is standing by the side of the pit that Stephen was stoned in, in spite of all of his pride, arrogance, and evil, God had in his heart all along to call Paul and set him aside as a chosen vessel. In spite of Paul's arrogance and boasting and even murderous thoughts, God intended in his heart to set Paul aside as a vessel that he wanted to use. Now, that says something very loudly to all of us. We have to get our arms around here. That even in our sinfulness, even in our spiritual death that we were in, and that you may still be in, that, that, that you, you've been trying to replace faith and surrender in Christ with religious rituals, and you're just as empty now as the first day you tried that. And, and you may be ashamed of the things you've done. You may be ashamed of the, the, the sin that you've committed. When you look back, you cringe at the things you've done. So you just you keep trying to put those rituals into your life to kind of give some kind of covering or coating or, or ease to the suffering of what you've done in your past. But when you peel all the layers back and you get down to the real issue, the real issue is you don't really believe that God has a purpose for your life and you don't really believe that God could forgive you of all that you've done and you don't really believe that you could have the life that you've heard about all of your life while sitting in religious rituals. Sure, grace, you believe in grace, but you believe it's for somebody else. You, you believe in mercy, but it couldn't come, possibly come to you because how could a pastor know how bad your life has been? I really don't know, do I? So how could it possibly be true for you? Let me tell you that you're believing the lies of Satan that he loves for you to believe, that somehow you're outside of grace, somehow what you've done is worse than what everybody else has done. Somehow what you've done separates you from the grace of God. Somehow what you've thought and what you've acted out and what heinous crimes you've committed, somehow God's grace can't reach to that dark place. But can I bring your attention to Paul, who had it all, who was religious, who was zealous, who had all the rituals you want to put your hand on, who can, you can check all the boxes. Paul was checking all the boxes, yet he was cold, indifferent, and lost, and needed a spiritual rebirth. And in the middle of all of that sinfulness and rebellion, you know what God's doing? God's saying, that's mine right there. He's mine, and I'm going to set him apart, and I've got a purpose for him. I've got a life for him that's different than the life he's been living, and I'm going to confront him with the good news of the gospel. I'm going to confront him with my son, and in that moment, he can't choose anything else. He's going to have to surrender his life because he is my chosen vessel. Guess what God is saying about you? But in spite of all, that God has a purpose and meaning for your life. And that accompanies his mercy and his forgiveness for whatever you've done. You've not gone too far. Paul's purpose in life was determined in the heart of the Godhead Trinity. And eternity passes. So it is with you, so it is with me. And he's calling you and drawing you. He, maybe you're on that road to Damascus. You're on the road to continue either the religious rituals or, 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 or continuing to try to find something from this world that'll suffice and finally give you peace. You're walking that road. And Jesus has been walking into your path. It may be through a friend. It may be through something you heard on the radio. It may be what you've heard said through me and through others, through a song on this stage. And Jesus has gotten in your business over and over over and over again, yet you think, you think that it couldn't possibly be real for you. What about for those of us who've been disciples for a while, you have truly come from darkness into life, and, and yet you've made a mistake, you've dropped the ball, you've missed the mark, and you've retreated back into your old life, right? Not that you've lost your salvation. We don't believe that's possible. If you've truly come to faith in Christ, you can't let go of something that's been given to you. You're, you're not holding on to God. God's holding on to you. But you have retreated back into that old life. Well, there's shame attached to that, right? 
there's, there's this idea that I could never be restored. Can I direct your life back to Paul's life? If God's willing to forgive him and set him free, certainly. He's willing to forgive you and set you free. So after this, Paul is going to meet Ananias. Ananias is going to go lay hands on him. These scales are going to fall off of his eyes. His vision is restored. He, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's going to be baptized. And, and then I want you to notice what happens in verse 20. It says in verse 20, after, after he's baptized and after he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he's born again, he, he's still wrestling with all that he believed and now all that he knows to be true. He's still working through his theology of what he's known in the Old Testament. Now he sees it from a totally different perspective that, that those Old Testament prophets were in fact talking about Jesus the Messiah. He, he spends a few days with the disciples at Damascus. Verse 20, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. This same guy who hated Jesus and his followers is now standing in the synagogue proclaiming him to be the son of God, the Messiah. The contrast between who he was and who he is. And what happened in the middle of that? Jesus, the light of Christ, the light of the gospel, penetrating his cold, dark heart and changing everything. This man who was breathing threats is now breathing the gospel. This man who was now hating Jesus has now made Jesus Lord and King of his life. This man who was pursuing disciples of Jesus to put them to death has now become one of their brothers. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that. Have you ever heard this phrase? God helps those who help themselves. I just want to tell you, when I hear that phrase, it makes the cold chills run down my spine. It drives me nuts, okay? So I started wondering, where did that phrase come from? It's this idea that that, you know, and if you're going to follow Jesus, we can apply it to this. If you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to be a good person first. And if you can be a good person, God helps those who help themselves. If you'll help yourself first, if you'll get your act together, then you'll find yourself to be worthy of what God has to offer, right? Isn't that what Saul did for most of his early days? He had the best teachers in Judaism, Gamaliel, Hebrew of the Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin. Boy, he had the resume. He was helping himself with the expectation that God would help him. That, that if I can meet God halfway, if I can just, if I can just build the bridge out to God a little bit, then that God will meet me there and everything will be okay, right? Where did that idea come from? Well, its roots go all the way back to Greek mythology. As a matter of fact, there is some indication in Greek mythology that there's a story of, of one where a, a man's wagon falls into a hole and he, he needs help, so he appeals to Hercules to come and help him. And, and Hercules says, you start working on it, and then I'll help you out. And there's another story of Athena, uh, the goddess, and there's a shipwreck, and there's a guy who's, who's drowning after this shipwreck, and he calls out to Athena to save him. And Athena says, well, if you'll swim, if you'll just start swimming and do the best you can, then, then I'll, I'll, I'll come and help you. Ben Franklin, Poor Richard's Almanac, 1736. There's a phrase in that almanac that says, God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> Go back to Philippians chapter 3. What, is, what does Paul have to say about that later in his life? I want you to hear his words, because his words are much better than anything I could tell you. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. So we're back where we started, and here's where, what Paul says. He says, here's my resume. If, I had, if anybody has anything to boast about, then certainly I do because I had all those works of the flesh and all that keeping the law. And what did it amount to? Well, he's going to tell us, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, 
and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I count all of that stuff back there that I used to brag about, I count it as filth, as garbage, as refuse for the sake of knowing Jesus. You see, it's not about you helping yourself so that God will join in in the help that you're already trying to produce. It's not about God coming and saying, oh, look what a great, great person you are. You've, you've done such a good job. I'm going to just help you out a little bit. No, not at all. And I think Saul's testimony is proof that you can have all the religious rituals. You can check all the boxes. But if you haven't had a new heart and a rebirth, then just as Paul would say, it's garbage. It's a waste of time. So maybe, maybe just maybe, you, you've, you've tried to fill in the blank of your life with everything but Jesus. Maybe, maybe you've been around Jesus enough and been around the church enough that you know all of the terms and you know all the words and you know, you know how to answer the questions and check the boxes. But on the inside, on the inside, you're dead and empty. On the inside, there's never been a change that you can point to whatsoever. You know all the terms, but you don't have new life. That means you're trying to build a bridge to God that you can't possibly build. It means you're trying to do better yourself so that God will somehow fix your life apart from the new life that only comes through Jesus Christ. So as we prepare for this last song, I, I want you to contemplate. Has there been that change in your life? Has there been that point in your life where you were once this, you met Jesus, however that looked like, where you were eight years old or 80, that moment, that change, and you're, you are a different person since because that's what New Testament Christianity and being a disciple of Jesus is all about. Father in heaven, I am so thankful that this has been established in my life. Once and for all. The Father, once and for all, I know where I stand with you. I don't have to worry about my future, my eternity, or otherwise. And I know, Father, what got me from this, from the place of lostness to now, it was not my works that I may boast, but it's your work in me through the gospel. And Father, I want to spend the rest of my life boasting about that. Thank you for your goodness and your kindness, and through even though we're separated from our congregation physically, Father, they're not separated from you. So through this platform of the internet and technology, bring conviction where it's needed. Father, may your light penetrate the darkness. We ask it in Christ's name. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 